Do you spend hours in your head thinking about something that happened, could have happened, or might happen? Do you ask others what to do so you don't make a mistake? Welcome to the Playing It Safe podcast. I am Dr. Z, your host. I am a clinical psychologist, an author, and a person that is super passionate about sharing with you science-based skills to overcome any type of fear-based struggles. Who doesn't experience fear? Who doesn't play it safe? In this show, we will discuss how fear-based reactions happen in day-to-day life, how playing it safe behaviors look like, sound like, and feel like, how you can put into action solid tips from behavioral science to get unstuck from worries, fears, obsessions, and anxieties, and how you can start doing what works, what matters, and what you care about. Behavioral science doesn't have to be boring. Thanks for listening, and let's get started. How do you become psychologically flexible in a way that you can do what matters without getting lost in your head? How do you leave your values when things are stressful and overwhelming? How can you step back from all the noise that shows up in your head and do what matters? How do you distinguish a story that your mind tells you about who you are from your true self? How do you know when your actions are moves towards your values and when they are not? How do you know when avoidance is a values-based move? Today, in this episode of the Plain It Safe podcast, I am sharing with you a conversation I had with Lou Lasprugato. I hope I am saying his last name correctly. Lou is a marriage and family therapist. He practices in California and in Virginia. He is a peer-reviewed trainer in Acceptance and Commitment Therapy Act, and he's also a teacher of mindfulness meditation. Now, in this conversation, Lou and I chat a lot about self as a context versus self as a content. I know that sounds ultra fancy, but bear with me. Within acceptance and commitment therapy or acceptance and commitment coaching, there are six psychological skills that research has shown are fundamental for you to become psychologically flexible so you can do more of what matters to you and you can be who you want to be. One of these skills is called self as a context. Within ACT, there is a distinction between self as a content and self as a context. I know, sorry, I know sounds really, really jargony here. But basically, here's the idea. When you are consumed, cut, and trapped in self as a content, you believe the stories your mind tells you about who you are and you take them as the absolute truth. For example, you may believe that you are not good enough, that you are a mess, that you are unworthy, that you are bad at practicing sports. When you are stuck in self as a content, all what you are listening is to what your mind tells you. It's quite likely that you are neglecting and dismissing the uniqueness of that particular situation in which your mind is coming up with all those thoughts. 
You may be also dismissing your own learning history. And you're also dismissing one of the things that your mind is always doing. Minding, minding, thinking and thinking. Now, in ACT, self as a context is a much more flexible way of looking at yourself. Rather than being attached and consumed to those stories that your mind tells you about who you are, you understand yourself as always interacting with your environment, with a particular situation that you are encountering. So self as a context allows you to observe yourself with openness and instead of holding all those thoughts that your mind tells you about who you are as the absolute truth, you look at them in the context of what is happening in a given moment in your life. You look in the context of what happens before, what is your mind telling you, what's showing up in your body, what are you feeling, what you are sensing, and your responses. If you do X, what happens in your life? If you do Y, what happens in the moment? So self as a context allows you to observe yourself with a lot of openness to what's happening around you in a given moment. Instead of holding on to the thought of I am not good enough as the absolute truth, you step back from the thought and you acknowledge the context in which your mind is telling you all those thoughts. What happens before? And you look at what you're feeling, what you're sensing, what's showing up in your body. And then you choose your response. So when you choose how to respond in that particular moment, you are not going along with the story that says, I am a mess, I am unworthy. Because you are choosing your behavior. That's what is very important. That's the main difference between self as a content and self as a context. Because if you do exactly what the story about not being good enough tells you, you may not be doing the things that are important to you. You may hide, you may isolate, you may not go out with your friends, you may avoid challenges. But if you learn to step back and hold the story in perspective, you may choose a different behavior and therefore you are not dominated by that story. Your behavior is not dictated by that particular thought. In my conversation with Lou, we unpack what self as context is and we also talk about how you can live your values as you move throughout your day. There is a huge difference between talking and thinking about your values and who you want to be and how you want to show up to your partner or how you want to show up to your kids or how you want to practice your spiritual life versus living those values. We all get busy. We go from one activity onto another one. You will hear specific examples of how you can choose your values-based moves, your values-based actions as you move throughout your day. And of course, because the podcast is focused on playing it safe moves, 
you will hear how avoidance, which is the mother of all planet safe moves, can be adaptive, necessary, and it can also be a values-based move in some situations. I want to encourage you to listen to this conversation from the beginning to the end. And if you go to the website www.thisisdrz.com, you will find all the resources that we mentioned in this conversation. And you will also find a link for 10 act guided meditations facilitated by Lou. So make sure you check out the website. Okay, without further ado, I wish you a great week and let's jump onto the episode. Bye-bye. Maybe I can start by asking you, how was the ACT conference for you this year? Lovely. Uh, actually, it was a mixed experience for me, to, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I, well, I was, I moved the week after the ACBS oh. conference. So I was incredibly busy and admittedly very stressed uh, going into that conference. And I had quite a few events that I was either presenting or participating in this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I didn't get to enjoy uh, um uh, observing and attending as much as I had in the past. Um, mm-hmm. However, I did very much enjoy um, presenting, including uh, the, I really had fun on the couple of panel discussions I was on. Those were actually a lot of fun. And and also the, the workshops uh, that I was a part of or facilitated and uh, so I enjoyed those parts. I also enjoyed getting to see people in person uh, for the first time in years, whether with or without masks. Uh, that was really nice to connect with folks again. Um, and it was just, uh, I love the community. So it mm-hmm. was just nice to be a part of the community again uh, in person. Yeah, yeah, it's such a vibrant community for sure. And it's strange to be reconnecting face to face after the pandemic. It was strange. In fact, the first day for me, um, I noticed some anxiety showing up in mm-hmm. in, in sort of like um, this kind of uncertainty with regards to how I was approaching people and whether or not, uh, you know, I was staying masked. Uh, thinking about my family at home. And uh, and so that part was a, a little unnerving, uh, to be honest, at first. And 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 also just, um, you know, as far as greeting people, right, it, wanting to respect how others wanted to be greeted uh, and as far as closeness, proximity. So the, those parts were kind of interesting to navigate in the first day. And then, and then there was sort of a groove that ended up uh, uh, happening as time went on. But at first it was a bit unusual. And I will say this, like what was most apparent to me was how overly stimulating it was that the whole time really, but especially the first day or so, very, my senses were not used to that kind of stimulation. So it was kind of overwhelming at first. So I had to balance my uh, connection time with, uh, you know, 
downtime by myself and uh, mm-hmm. in the hotel room. So that was important. Mm-hmm. I absolutely relate to that. I think that um, it was overly stimulating for myself, even though people don't believe this, but I'm more like on the shy side of things. So mm-hmm. I love that socialization, that connection, but I need some reset time to slow down, step back. So I felt like that to the whole conference, just dancing a little bit, doing connecting, socializing and taking a break to pause. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, if I can go back to something you mentioned, when you were connecting with people at a conference, there is all these thoughts, perhaps worry thoughts about, do I do handshakes? Do I give them a hug? What happens if someone is positive for COVID or they are symptomatic and they don't know? Do I bring the virus to my family? How did you navigate with all those thoughts that were popping up? Well, it's funny. <laughs> all those questions you just asked, Patricia, were almost precisely the, mm-hmm. the exact questions that were entering my mind that whole first day. Um, so, so how did I navigate that? Well, I think just uh, one at a time. So, you know, the question would come up and in my mind, such as, okay, you know, here's a, a dear friend I haven't seen in a while and um, and I'd like to connect with them or I'd like to greet them. And you, I don't know if you recall, but there were these little stickers you can, the colored stickers you can have on your name badge uh, to determine kind of what you were willing to do. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, what's interesting about that is I noticed that the majority of attendees had the, I guess it was the green color uh, mm-hmm. a circle, which indicated hugs are fine, you know, hugs yeah. are ac- acceptable. And what I started to wonder was, because even for myself, when I went to grab a sticker, I was going to grab the, I think it was the yellow sticker, which was kind of like, uh, yes, I'd like to connect but want to do it somewhat cautiously. Mm-hmm. And that was because, once again, thinking of my family at home, and we were about to hop on a plane to fly across the country, and oh. it was really important that we were all well to do that. That's what was on my mind at the time. So, But when I went to grab the yellow sticker, I realized that I wasn't seeing anyone with that color. Almost everyone had the green sticker on. and mm-hmm. I and, and I was wondering if there was some influence, you know, some influence happening uh, with respect to um, people gravitating towards the green because everyone else was doing so. And so (laughs) I thought that was interesting, but I kind of just, uh, I kind of just with each person I met, I just, I just uh, kind of greeted that moment and that person with a new choice. So, so it, rather than making any choice up front, I, every opportunity that presented itself, I would make a choice and I try to make a conscious choice on the spot there, depending upon the circumstances, whether we were both masked, who the person was, et cetera. Which is a beautiful way to talk about active skills, since there is a lot of noise happening. There is a lot of thoughts that you have to decide what you respond to and what not, and which act process guide you to make that choice. So bringing my attention to the present moment. So we got mm-hmm. the present moment here. Mm-hmm. And, and then, of course, there are values, right? So 
values related to kind of who I wanted to be and what I wanted to bring to that experience in mm. that context, in the context of the conference or in the context of that particular relationship as, as far as a particular person. So, mm -hmm. uh, and at times, like I have a dear friend, Philip, who I was really excited to see in person. Mm -hmm. And we hung out at my hotel room and, and caught up and, um, you know, so my choice was very much influenced by values in connecting with him and our friendship. Um, and even though there were certain worries uh, present as well, uh, they did not have as much of a, you know, uh, um, influence on my behavior with him, especially knowing that he also, uh, uh, you know, was was practicing certain safety measures on his own as well. So, mm -hmm. so there's values at play. Uh, there's mm -hmm. the committed action in terms of, you know, here we are in this moment, uh, whether I was presenting or, or meeting up with someone or um, it was take, I, I knew I wanted to take action. Mm -hmm. I knew that I did not want my behavior totally under aversive control, right? Mm -hmm. So instead, I wanted it um, uh, primarily under appetitive control of values. So I'd make choices to um, to hug certain people at times or to uh, um, join certain uh, get-togethers if, if, once again, if it was meaningful enough for me to do that. And mm -hmm. frankly, if I also felt like I was physically up to it and didn't need to retreat and recharge, you know, back in my room. Um, and so there's also a bit of self-care in terms of a value there too. So I was balancing connection and friendship contributing um, with self-care. And then uh, once again, these, these thoughts, these worries would be there. And mm -hmm. if I was fully giving into those thoughts, well, then I wouldn't have been there to begin with, or I wouldn't have been connecting with folks. So for the most part, the thoughts kind of came and go, but there were times that I'd listen to the thoughts if they were useful. Like if I was in a you know, a huge crowd and most of the people were unmasked and, and I wasn't presenting, but rather I was in the audience. I, I keep my mask on and, you know, and be as safe as I could in that context. Right. So sometimes I'd listen to those thoughts if they were useful. Um, and then of course, after that first day and all the, the stimulation and feeling a little overwhelmed by that, gradually I kind of settled in and was kind of making room for some of those more excitatory feelings mm -hmm. uh, and just sort of breathing into them and, you know, and, and continuing with one event and then the following event. And so there was acceptance there of the feelings I was experiencing um, as well. Although that first day, I would say there was probably a little bit of a struggle going on, frankly, like I felt like my capacity to fully make room for my experience mm -hmm. was feeling a bit overwhelmed. So there was a bit of a struggle there at first, I would imagine, if I looked back. And then finally, uh, with self as context, the sixth mm -hmm. process there in the model, um, I think one of the ways I've come to look at self as context is 
how we uh, is an extension of ourselves from our bodies. And mm -hmm. so when I think of self as context, and when I think of my identity, uh, part of that is ACBS and mm -hmm. even in ACT and the people that are a part of that community. So, so there's an extension of myself that goes beyond my body. And mm -hmm. so, you know, and, and so in some ways, as I'm relating to others in an event like that, or as I'm presenting, um, there are parts of myself that are both within me, but also connected to a larger whole, right? So mm -hmm. being mindful of that experience, um, I would say uh, helps to kind of just transcend some of my more self-limiting thoughts uh, as I connect, connect with a larger whole. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you so much for breaking down all the ACT processes. For people listening to us, when we think about acceptance and commitment therapy, we're thinking about the six processes, values, committed action, acceptance, contact with the present moment, self as a content, and I'm forgetting one. Diffusion. Diffusion, a very important one. <laughs> if I can ask a little bit more, as you were sharing your experience and really mapping these six processes, you mentioned something key. You mentioned, I didn't want to be under aversive control. I wanted to behave as an appetitive control. How can you unpack those terms and how they will look in day-to-day -day life? Mm, sure. So... With a appetitive control, my so if I say I want my behavior to be more under appetitive control, what I'm saying is um, I want my behavior to be more under the influence of 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 things I want to move toward uh, mm -hmm. that are appealing. So we could think of appetitive as appealing, mm -hmm. and appealing doesn't always mean pleasant it can mean pleasant um but it can also mean meaningful uh and meaningful can sometimes be uncomfortable and yet that can be appetitive in that it's something that's important to me that i want to move toward so and then behavior under aversive control is behavior that's under the control of unpleasant, uncomfortable experiences that I don't want, uh, that I want to get away from, right? Mm -hmm. So when we talk about toward moves and away moves and act, toward moves would be behavior under appetitive control. Away mm -hmm. moves is behaviors under aversive control. We're usually trying to get away from unpleasant stuff. Mm -hmm. Now, can I ask a sassy question? Sure. Okay. <laughs> uh, I am thinking that in regard to fears, worries, and anxieties, the context or a setting or a situation defines what works in a given moment. It's never this black and white. And on the one hand, we encourage people to face their fears in the name of their values, in the service of being who they want to be. And at the same time, at times, it is in the service of their values to avoid. How do you see that? Mm, that was a great question. Um, well, firstly, there's a few things coming to mind here. Mm -hmm. um, firstly, when I think of making decisions guided by values or, or guided by fears, anxiety, worry, 
I think of, uh, you know, when it comes to survival, when it comes to, um, you know, surviving an actual physical threat uh, of some kind, um, those are situations where ideally we want to we want our behavior to be under aversive control, under the control of fears, worries, anxieties that might be functioning to protect us from harm, right? Mm-hmm. So, and and if we care about our life, if we care about our well-being, that could be an example of a behavior that's both values guided, but also under the aversive control of fear, anxiety, and worry. So there's a little bit of both. So that's where, as you pointed out, it's not always black and white. There can be overlap and a, you, our behavior can have multiple functions to it, right? That's right. If I can interject a little bit, as you were mentioning, one example that popped up in my mind is, let's say that I am walking with my child on the street. My kid is four or five years old. And then I see a car driving really, really fast. And then I had this intense experience of fear. What if this car hits my kid or there is an accident? So I may grab the kid very quickly. Perhaps that's one example in which my behavior was under adversive control in the service of protecting my kid. Will that apply? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beautiful. It's a great example. Yeah, I I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah, just like that, right? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, it's a great example. And I would say, and we can think of many, many other examples that, uh, you know, are are likely happening on a regular basis for people that are not as... um, life-threatening, right? That are not as life-threatening, right? So, um, you know, prior to, so prior to uh, this move to Virginia, Mm -hmm. uh, the last many months of my life out in California, uh, there was a lot of anxiety and worry going on regarding the move, uh, regarding buying a new home, selling our home, uh, right? Selling our vehicles, getting new vehicles because we didn't transport them across, getting my son situated in school. And then the biggest worry for me was regarding my older son and whether or not he was going to transition and acclimate well to this Mm -hmm. new environment, given he had such a strong uh, um, uh, foundation of friendship where we did live. So so there were times when let's say I would have some worry about that and even though much of the time it was unhelpful uh it would motivate me to like look into a a karate dojo in the new area we were moving to or to get him signed up for cross country. You know, it it sometimes would motivate me to take those actions because I knew that they could be helpful to him acclimating and transitioning in this new environment. So even though there were also values involved with that, uh, they part of my behavior was under aversive control, but ultimately helpful, ultimately workable uh, in in that context. Does that make sense? It does. It does. That's a beautiful example of a non-life-threatening event involving fears. Um, if we can unpack this a little bit, you mentioned moments ago the word function and looking at the function of a behavior. How would you explain that to a person that doesn't have any behavioral background? Sure. 
I, I've, I've learned to look at it in, um, in kind of two different ways, right? Mm. So we can look at function as when it comes to human behavior as what are we trying to get or mm. get away from? So what are mm-hmm. we trying to get or get mm. away from? Mm. Uh, another way to look at it is what is the purpose of my behavior? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, what am I trying to do? What am I trying to achieve? But we can also look at function as effect. What's the effect of my behavior? What effect is it having on me or my environment, right? So I think ultimately, if we kind of uh, kind of look at this from a traditional behavioral lens, Mm-hmm. I would think that we would refer to a function as effect. What kind of effect is, it, is, is the behavior actually having? What are the consequences of that behavior, in other words? But I'm also interested, like when our mind is worrying about something in the future, mm-hmm. um, I'm also interested in what it's trying to get or get away from. Like what might be the purpose or the intention of that worry? Because there's function inside of that. And oftentimes I'd like to think in terms of the three Ps. Like our Mm -hmm. mind is trying to prepare us, it's trying to protect us, or it's trying to prevent something from happening, right? Trying Mm -hmm. to prepare, protect, or prevent. And so we can look at those uh, those purposes as as functions as well, even though it might not necessarily be having the outcome of actually protecting us from anything. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love that three piece. That's very, very clever. And I am thinking about our audience and they just hear this beautiful description of looking at the function, effect, impact, consequence of how you behave. Um, why in the world that will be helpful to them? I know it's helpful for us because that's how we think, right? We breathe and live behaviorists. But for people that are not very familiar, why in the world they have to be thinking about that? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it could be helpful in at least two ways. Mm-hmm. One is that um, it can have kind of a normalizing effect. So if we if we are able to step back from our mind and mm-hmm. see what it's attempting to do, and and it's usually attempting to do something for us. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and recognizing, ah, there's my mind attempting to, you know, protect my son. There's my mind attempting to prepare me for his grief. There's my mind attempting to prevent him from being socially isolated, right? So these are actual examples of what my mind was doing in the Mm -hmm. months prior to the move. So that had kind of a normalizing effect on me in that. I recognize, oh, my mind is really just trying to help me out here, um, even though it might be keeping me up at night at times. Uh, mm-hmm. But and then the other way it could be helpful is um, we can uh, we can pivot. Uh, and so if our mind is is let's say it's well, what if my son has a hard time and he's he's isolated after we move as an example. Now to sit there and let that kind of spin out of control is not likely going to help me very much or him very much at all. However, if I can pivot to do something useful, with that worry, such as reaching out to, like I said, martial art dojos in the area to see if he can 
you know, uh, get connected in that way. Well, then I was able to make use of that, uh, that worry in, in a way that could be helpful to me and my family. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in other words, in other words, there's energy inside of those worries. And when it's trying to prepare, protect, or prevent, there's energy in that. And we can kind of, if we can harness that energy and then channel it in a useful direction, well, then, you know, that ultimately uh, we're, you know, that's, uh, it's, we're, once again, we're making use of something that otherwise would be overwhelming or unhelpful. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful lens to understand the choices we make, how we behave. Because I think many times other approaches will be looking at our behaviors as good or bad, healthy or unhealthy. And within ACT, we're really looking at what's the impact? How is this behavior helping me to be who I want to be or is taking me away? And if I can ask a little bit, one of the situations sometimes I encounter in my work with clients is that when we practice some exercises to watch our mind, it feels a little bit counterintuitive. It feels a little bit odd. We live in the information era and we have been socialized to respond to thinking with more thinking. I think we are the epiphany of what Descartes says. I think, therefore, I exist. Um, what was your personal journey in terms of learning to watch your mind? I think, um, you know, learning to watch my mind came out of a, a, a Buddhist practice starting in like 2001 yeah around 2001 i had moved from uh, delaware to boston to go to graduate school uh for my masters in counseling psychology and i became very interested in exploring my spiritual self and um and so i started kind of attending different um spiritual kind of um, um, gatherings. And I landed in uh, Shambhala Buddhism for a short while. And, and mainly while I didn't get too deep into, um, you know, too deep into the, the, the historical teachings, I did attend every week a group meditation practice and, um, began watching my mind for the first time all right Mm -hmm. so that's how i started to be able to kind of access this observing self as we call it in act uh to step back and just watch my mind and also to see how active my mind typically is which was um uh kind of a a wake-up call when i first encountered that Mm-hmm. Can I ask a little bit about the type of meditation exercises you started with? Sure. Yeah. So it was called shamatha uh, mm-hmm. meditation, and it basically it's kind of a just a calm observing. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know exactly how it translates, but that's how I remember it. Kind of a calm witnessing. Uh, so we would usually start with like a a, 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 a focus on the on the breath on our breathing. And then be instructed to simply observe our oftentimes it was internal experiences, but there were times we go for meditation walks and mm. uh, also practice with external uh, stimuli. Uh, but oftentimes it was observing our inner world um, and 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 
depending upon the instructor, depending upon where I, what I was doing at the time, the instruction may have been to simply observe and notice that. And mm -hmm. other times it may have been to notice and then come back to an anchor such as the breath. So it varied depending mm -hmm. upon where I was at in that journey. It sounds beautiful. Sounds very, very impactful. Um, if I can ask a little bit more, Lou, um, one of the processes that at times can be confusing for people when they're learning act is self as a context or perspective taking. And that's something you mentioned before that you see as an extension of your body as stepping back. And that's another process that sometimes people struggle experiencing a time or noticing or making sense of because our mind, of course, needs to make this logical sense of everything. What would you encourage them to do or to practice? How would it look like this process of self as a context? So, yeah, self as context is usually known as the trickiest process uh, <laughs> in the ACT model. And, and I, I think more so than any of the other processes, it can, it can also have different forms and functions. So, so we can, so as far as self as context, we can look at this simply as this observing self that we've talked about. And with respect to these, what if worries that come up, being able to kind of just observe worries as it uh, from this perspective of an observer of a witnesser. Uh, so, mm -hmm. so in other words, for example, we might just pause and see if we can notice the very next thought that shows up. And it's the noticing part of us that we that that is self as context that's able to see that thought. Now we can quickly slip right back into thinking. So this mm -hmm observing self is very elusive for most of us. Uh, it's not something we can hold on to or grasp. It's something we access and then we kind of slip back into thinking as human beings. So, so one way of looking at self as context, if you're practicing any kind of mindfulness meditation, as an example, is anytime you're able to observe an experience you're having, that self as context in action. Another mm -hmm. way to look at it is to just consider, uh, we often, our attention will often narrow onto a part of ourselves that is threatening in some way. So whether it's like a not good enough story or a, a painful feeling we're experiencing, physical pain, emotional pain, um, or some ruminative thought or some uh, traumatic uh, memory, our attention tends to narrow onto these threatening experiences. The self as context, if we're able to step back out and just see, okay, that's one part of our experience. And then there are these other parts and these other parts, right? As mm -hmm. Russ Harris talks about, like, these are all like actors or characters on a stage, right? Oftentimes we have a spotlight on one character or actor on this stage, but can we turn the lights up on the rest of the stage and see all the other parts of us? And in this larger context, we call self as context, that, that threatening part, not that it disappears, but mm -hmm. it loses some of its stimulus control. It loses some of the power, the influence that it has over our behavior. So that's another way of kind of tapping into self as context. And finally, that third way I shared, or actually two more ways. Third way was the extension of ourselves yeah. 
into relationships, community, spirit, nature, depending upon how you might define self in that way. And then mm-hmm. finally, perspective taking, like mm-hmm. me being able to uh, imagine what it's like to be you right now, interviewing me and me being able to uh, imagine myself in the future, looking back and me being able to go back into the past to um, uh, to see the world through my eyes as a child. All of this perspective taking across time, space and person develops a more flexible sense of self. But also there's there's this I here nowness that from from which all this perspective taking is happening right and so we can tap into that i here nowness through perspective taking as well and that perspective taking i think is sort of a a fast route to flexible responding to um uh, challenges in our life yeah thank you for sharing these four ways to think of self as a context Lude, i have one last question If you were to have a cup of tea or coffee or a beer or a scotch today with any person you want, who would that be and why? (laughs) That's a good question. Well, first of all, I, I, you know, I just really enjoyed our experience and I love your energy, uh, Patricia. I'd love to have a tea with you at some point. blushing time (laughs) (laughs) really to be to be honest i i would love that uh but tea is my first of all tea is my Mm -hmm. preference uh yeah and i'd love to have a tea with you sometime i can't think of anyone else at this moment that warms my heart makes me smile and makes me blush (laughs) all together and i will come the chance for us to have a cup of tea yeah yeah no that'd be great and and you know and to add to that in the service of the perspective taking we were just talking about I, I would also say I'd love to have a cup of tea with my son in the future. So when he's a young adult, when he's a young adult, I ho- I would look forward to having a cup of tea with him uh, at some point. Love it. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, I will very much appreciate it if you will subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. And if you're feeling extra generous, I welcome a review on Apple Podcasts. Show notes of this episode are in the website playingitsafe.zone. Make sure to subscribe to my newsletter so you can receive more tips to stop all types of unworkable playing it safe actions. See you soon!